You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 21st of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, negotiations continue at the UN and elsewhere to bring about a new ceasefire in Gaza. Also ahead, luxury retail keeps faith with the high street. Later in the show... On behalf of the people of the United States, I am pleased to be here and accept the precious gift of the panda from the government of the People's Republic of China. A contemplation of the theory and practice of diplomatic gift-giving. And look, it's the last one this year, just humour him. Ah, I've read that out loud again, haven't I? Yes, Andrew, it's the final Global Countdown of the year, and for today we explore music and soft power. There's always next year. Fernando, we'll have more from you later in the show. That is all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Efforts are apparently continuing to draft a UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, which the United States will not feel obliged to veto. A vote on such a resolution has been delayed repeatedly this week as negotiations have ground on, although US President Joe Biden has suggested that he is open to being convinced. In other diplomatic manoeuvring, Ismail Hanya, head of Hamas's political wing, has been visiting Cairo. Well, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Open Democracy's international security expert and emeritus professor of peace studies at Bradford University. Um, Paul, are we clear on what kind of wording the United States is looking for before they will say I? Not really. We have a tolerable idea, uh, and it's mainly around the issue of inspection of goods going into Gaza. Uh, essentially, I think most countries won't see this being done as a UN operation, Israel is more or less insisting that it must have the must have the controlling say, as indeed it does in the case of stuff going in through the crossing from Israel, but also by agreement with the stuff going in from uh, Egypt. And they want to retain that. I think the two reasons, one is they want to make sure that stuff isn't being smuggled in. And two, I think they want to have a far greater say in controlling what is going into Gaza in the first place. Um, and it's part of their wider, I think, Dahia policy, which is really the way that Israel is now these days fighting wars, which does involve sort of pretty high control of how civilians are treated. And indirectly, this is important in terms of the stuff going into Gaza. It's not clear that that can be resolved, although the US sources speak of very high level negotiations. So there may be direct contacts between uh, Washington and Jerusalem. But beyond that, it's clear that there have been problems because we're spending, what, four days in trying to get a settlement to this. And I wouldn't be surprised if one comes, but it's trouble is it's going to be very watered down, which I think is something that the United States might be happy with, and certainly Israel will tolerably, but many countries won't be. But that, I mean, is the reality of where we are at present. I mean, nevertheless, a UN Security Council resolution has a weight, a legal weight indeed, that a General Assembly resolution does not. If a UN Security Council resolution uh, on a ceasefire is got over the line, is that an end to it? Does Israel then have to back off? Uh, Well, it should, but it does not have to. And what would happen then is if Israel basically ignores this, 
then the United Nations does have other means at its disposal, but it's not in the position of enforcing it in the normal sense of the word. Uh, so you may well find that other countries will be uh, more cautious in what they're sending to Israel, possibility even of some effect on arms sales. But the reality is that Israel is only really dependent on one country for its ability to pursue this war, and that is the United States. And it would depend very much if this motion does go through in whether the United States, behind the scenes, very much in secret, would actually put such pressure on Israel that it has to deliver. That remains to be seen, but we cannot take it for granted at the moment. Well, let's look at some of the other diplomatic shuttling. And Ismail Hanya, who has been getting out and about a perhaps surprising amount uh, for somebody in his precarious p- position, has been visiting Cairo. But do we know how serious a figure he still is in terms of having any uh, control over what Hamas does? Does he have any sway at all over the Al-Qassam brigades in Gaza? Well, the reality is there are three sources of power and influence within Hamas. One is he, and he does have still a pretty strong um, ability, particularly in his relations with the Egyptians. Uh, the second is the military wing of Hamas, which is essentially still calling the shots. And the third is what you might call the political or administrative wing within Gaza, which seems to be somewhat distant from the military wing. But it's a military wing that counts. Where I think he has the value is when it comes to negotiating with the likes of Qatar and, of course, Egypt as well. And it's certainly true that in the recent pause, that did follow some pretty heavy negotiations in which he was involved. But beyond that, you can't be sure. What is clear is that the Israeli Defence Forces are having a lot more difficulty within Gaza in doing the sort of control they wanted. They want more time, a lot more time, and they want to be able to continue the airstrikes at the current level of intensity. That, I think, is the problem for the United States. And indeed, in the long term, it may well be for Israel, because whatever you say, um, the results of what are going on now, what into the, is it the 11th week, you're seeing international opposition to Israel um, really rising a lot, and not just in the traditional countries, in many other countries as well. The reality is that, uh, as things stand at the moment, it is the position of the IDF within Gaza, which is significant, and that in some ways is, 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 I suppose you could say it's determining the way the war is being fought. And with all the international things that are going on, one tends to forget that. It's what is happening on the ground that counts. And that has proven to be much slower than the IDF actually expected. And I think this is one of the reasons why they would want to resist anything which controls what they're able to do, particularly in the coming four or five weeks. Uh, we should look as well at the escalating subplot of cargo traffic in and out of the Red Sea to the Suez Canal. A lot of shipping companies are now sending their vessels around the Cape of Good Hope, which is a considerable diversion uh, to avoid missiles, drones and uh, other attacks launched from Yemen by the Houthis. Um We have seen the United States putting together some sort of armada intended to deter the Houthis, but are the Houthis the kind of organisation who will understand when they have pushed their luck? Is there a genuine risk of this one escalating further? Well, I think it could. In terms of what it means, about 15% of the goods imported into Europe at the present time come via the Suez Canal. Now, that doesn't sound very much, but we have to remember that most of the oil that goes into uh, Europe as either by pipeline or by the giant, very large crude carriers, you know, three, four hundred thousand ton ships, which are designed and intended to go around the Cape of Good Hope. 
they don't even could never even fit through the Suez Canal. So in fact, 15% of what does come through is much more in the area of um, all kinds of consumer goods, lots of container ships and the rest. So it is significant, not massively so, but certainly significant. I think it's more a case that the United States sees the need to maintain its own perception of security in the Red Sea, and it's been able to get other countries, including certainly Britain, Bahrain apparently, although that's where the, the major Fifth Fleet is located for the US Navy, and also Australia. So it's a kind of international venture, very much a Western one, but it is, I think, really a signal uh, directly to Houthis, but frankly, indirectly to Iran, that if they encourage the Houthis to do more of this, the United States would be prepared to intervene. That would, of course, be a major escalation. But I think we'll see in the next three or four weeks whether that comes to anything. Uh, Paul Rogers, thank you as always for joining us. That was the international security expert, Paul Rogers. Here is Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Tens of thousands of Argentines took to the streets of Buenos Aires on Wednesday to protest against the government's economic shock measures. Argentina's president, Javier Millet, who took office earlier this month, has called for major economic reforms, including cuts to public spending and a 54% devaluation of peso currency. Elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been extended following widespread delays and allegations of fraud and violence. The DRC's incumbent president, Felix Chisikeda, faces 18 challenges against a backdrop of soaring inflation in the country. Meanwhile, Serbia has announced plans for a rerun of elections in 30 polling stations, according to state media. The announcement follows two days of widespread protests after a snap parliamentary election was held over the weekend. The rerun election will be held on the 30th of December. President Aleksandr Vucic claims his Serbian Progressive Party has already secured a commanding victory. And Warner Bros. Discovery and Paramount Global are set to discuss a possible merger agreement. If the deal goes ahead, the two media entertainment giants would control a large inventory of films, television shows and a number of broadcast TV channels. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Sophie. In fashion news, British retail Leviathan Fraser's Group has spent circa $1 billion to acquire the e-commerce platform Matches Fashion. And in what appears a similar victory for old-school physical retail presence, Prada has belted out $425 million to buy the New York City building in which its Fifth Avenue flagship store has long been located. Well, joining me now from Paris is Dana Thomas, a fashion writer and author of Fashionopolis, the price of fast fashion and the future of clothes. Um, Dana, if there is something linking these two developments together, uh, is it a vote of confidence in bricks and mortar? I think it's a bit of a Yes, definitely. Because, you know, the go-go years of e-tailing have sort of waned, you know, and, and they and they really exploded during the COVID pandemic, of course, when we all sat at home and were like, now what do we do? Let's go shopping online. When people are out shopping again, they want to be out mixing around other people. They want to have that human touch. They want to go look at things and touch things. So bricks and mortar is definitely on the rise. But it doesn't mean that e-commerce is over. It's just that it's going to be more balanced and they're going to complement each other as opposed to one replacing the other. I mean, it's a slightly counterintuitive thought, but have people come to realise, especially when you're spending a lot of money on clothes, that uh, going out and buying it is in some respects actually more convenient? You can just find out at the time if it doesn't quite fit or doesn't quite look right. 
Exactly. And also, you know, it's just nice to go out and go. I mean, we love shopping. Shopping is one of our favorite pastimes. I believe actually in America, it has been ranked one like in the top three favorite pastimes of for Americans in polls. But, you know, and it's so it's we like to go out and try things on and touch them and feel them. And also we're less afraid of being around other people right now, which is great, even though COVID is back. I mean, is in general, especially, you know, post pandemic and people, as you say, returning uh, to the high streets, is online luxury retail beginning to struggle a bit? Because we also saw that development earlier this week of Farfetch being brought back uh, from the very brink of bankruptcy by being bought out by Coupang. Yeah, some of them are struggling because, you know, they they were counting like Netflix and so many other businesses that boomed during the pandemic that those numbers and those were going to keep going on that, you know, Netflix and all the streaming services are hemorrhaging too because and, and reeling because, you know, we sat at home all that time and watched TV and shopped online and everyone thought that we'd keep doing that and we aren't. So, yes, there's that. But also there's the, you know, the fact that people that companies that bought these companies the the retailers just didn't know what they were doing i mean matches was owned by a a a private equity firm called apex and they burned through four ceos in five years now i don't care what business you're in that's bad business and you're not going to do well if you can't even come up with somebody you know the the captain of the ship to run the ship longer than a couple months. Well, let's talk a bit about Prada's latest acquisition of its own uh, Fifth Avenue shop. Uh, $425 million is a lot of money, though I'm sure the rent on that place was considerable as well. Um, Why would Prada have wanted to buy that rather than carry on leasing it? Because they've been in a legal uh, lawsuit with the owner of the building for about three years, and it was got really really petty and really nasty in a sort of fashion New York way. They've been renting the place for years, $22 million a year in rent. Can you imagine? And then the building owners wanted to renovate the building next door and do some work on that building. And so they were going to move Prada out to a smaller building and their rent would go cut in half, but it was, you know, it was a less chic spot and it was less, you know, it wasn't where Prada had been forever. So the owners put up scaffolding and next door to work on that building, and it carried on across from Prada. And Prada got bent, and they said, "We don't want to move to the Crown Building. We want to stay where we are." But you know, you put up this, this scaffold. It, 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 it was just nasty. So anyway, after several years of suing each other, they settled out of court. They they figured out, you know, fine, okay, let's sort this out. And then uh, and then the, the owner just finally said, "Listen." You want the building, have the building, and sold the building to them. But but on that question <laughs> of avoiding the potential horror of having to move to a slightly less chic address, is, I mean, is, is right, I, right. I know the indignity, but is, is it still really important to a brand like Prada to be able to say we're on Fifth Avenue? Well, it was still on Fifth Avenue. It was just a block down the street, and it was in a beautiful old building. But Prada puts a lot into the design of its stores. I mean, the one in Tokyo is extraordinary. And, you know, they hire big, famous architects to do their stores. And so to do something temporary on Fifth Avenue rather than the the one where they invested all that time and money and paid pretty significant rent for years and then said, listen, you put scaffolding up because we didn't want to move. It, you know, it was 
it was like it was like petty small town business disagreements, but in with much bigger numbers on a much more famous street. <laughs> well, well, just finally, then, do you see this or these two purchases we've mostly been talking about as, uh, I, I guess, uh, har- harbingers of something of a, a trend, as in the the, the the reclamation of the luxury market by the old school brands who might actually have some idea what they're doing? Absolutely. I mean, Bernard Arnault and LVMH last week plunked down a billion dollars or euros for a building on the Champs-Élysées. And that's the third building they bought on the Champs-Élysées in the last uh, two years, I think. And I heard through the grapevine that one of the reasons they bought this building, a billion euros, was because Gucci was sniffing around about maybe leasing the retail space in it, which would have put them across the street from Louis Vuitton. And they didn't like that, so they swooped in and plunked down a billion euros so that Gucci wouldn't be their, ne- their across-the-street neighbors. I mean, I'm telling you, it's like small-town small town spats it, with lots of zeros on the end on famous streets. Dana Thomas, thank you for joining us. And do tune in to this Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk, in which we will be focusing on the role fashion plays in international diplomacy. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe. From industry reports and intrepid journeys to one-on-one interviews with voices that inspire. You only have one chance in life to do something like this and be part of it. If it works or not, who knows, but you can only try With hundreds of films available, there's plenty of exploring to be done. Just head to monocle.com slash film now. You are back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. It is the time of year at which many of us will be enduring another bracing annual lesson in the delicate difficulties of choosing the right gift for the right person. For some practitioners of at least one profession, however, it is a stress that never abates, not least because they don't have the option of thinking, the hell with this, I'll get them some socks. The field in question is diplomacy, where gifts are often given between people as a means of forging bonds between nations. Well, joining me in the studio are John Everard, a former British diplomat who served as the UK's ambassador to North Korea, Uruguay and Belarus. And he's joined by Michael Binion, a veteran foreign correspondent and former diplomatic editor at The Times. Um, John, first of all, why are diplomatic gifts important? Why is it necessary on any diplomatic occasion to take along a trinket? In Western cultures, it's just tradition. It's become the thing to do that you take along, as you say, a trinket, wanted or otherwise, (laughs) to whichever meeting you're going to, especially at high level. In Eastern cultures, of course, this has been the case for a very long time. No sensible emissary ever comes not bearing gifts. Michael, are there hard and fast rules about what makes a good diplomatic gift? Well, first of all, something that's probably going to appeal to the person who gets it. So it's got to be thoughtful. It's got to embody what you think that the recipient would like. It's also, in Western culture, not got to be something that's so valuable that the other person is either embarrassed or has to declare it and, in fact, doesn't receive it at all because it has to go straight into some kind of museum or something. In Eastern culture, I don't think there are such rules. And the more lavish, the more you show your munificence and your power, John, have you been present when something especially extravagant has been proffered? 
I, I can't say I have. Sorry. I've come across exactly the, the problem that Michael has just mentioned, that when I headed the panel of experts for the Security Council on North Korea, we spent our time chasing countries that were busy busting sanctions against North Korea. And quite often, I would be given not lavish gifts, but things like wristwatches or smart pens, or even <laughs> on one memorable occasion, a large Chinese chicken. This caused absolute pandemonium because under UN rules, you are not allowed to accept a gift worth more than some trivial amount. And so I ended up having to fill in endless UN forms to declare the gift, by which time the chicken had got rather cold. Michael, does this sort of thing go on often, the idea of the actually perishable diplomatic gift? Not very often, no. Most notoriously, a very large perishable gift was that of a racehorse, <laughs> which was given, well, several racehorses, in fact, which were the favourite gift of President Berdy Muhammadov from Turkmenistan, which rather prides itself on its thoroughbreds. And they gave one once to John Major when he was Prime Minister, who was somewhat embarrassed and at a loss at what to do with it. And I think he sent it off to some stable somewhere or some stud farm or something. But they also gave one to the Swedish Prime Minister, and that didn't work at all because the vets got hold of the racehorse first when it arrived, and they said it hasn't got any proper health certificates or vaccinations or whatever they need. And the thing was sent straight to the knackers and killed. That's bad news for the horse, but John, an enduring lesson in the hazards of this sort of thing. Am I right in assuming, though, if all is working as it should, that extraordinarily minute deliberations go into what will be presented to a visiting potentate? Oh, yes. Hours and hours are lavished on getting <laughs> the gift just right, making it something, that, as, as Michael says, that the potentate is going to appreciate and that he doesn't, isn't going to get him into trouble. I mean, I was involved in, in one disastrous such episode where we had quite a senior delegation who came to visit President Baji of Uruguay, and we didn't want to give him an ostentatious gift. That would have been inappropriate. So much head-scratching. We realised that he'd spent quite a lot of time in London, and with great effort, we went, took a, a really nice photograph of the house where he lived, framed it, put a dedicatory card on the bottom and everything. And with great aplomb, the delegation handed it across at the great meeting. And there was just the slight flicker of a true pro who isn't going to let drop that something's wrong. And I realised in that awful moment, we've got the wrong house. <laughs> <laughs> there is right there, and I, and I think this redounds greatly to the credit of that particular president, that he accepted it, Michael, in the spirit in which it was intended. Yes, that's quite right. You've got to be diplomatic in the way you receive it. And you've got to express some kind of delight and surprise and not overdo it, um, because that, you know, would seem to be a little bit ostentatious. I mean, if you find a gift that has associations with history, for example, mm. I mean, Britain spends a lot of time trying to find something appropriate for America, because basically America has everything. There's nothing <laughs> the president can't get. So for the American presidents, usually they think of something that has some historic link. I think there was a case of Gordon Brown giving mm. President Obama something carved from an antique piece of wood that was... Well, remind me what it was. It was... I believe, if memory serves, it was carved from the same wood as the exactly. HMS Resolute Desk at which the president worked. That's perfect, because it has a sort of historical connection. I don't think the Americans did so well the other way around. They gave Gordon Brown DVDs, which he... <laughs> I don't think had any interest in and probably couldn't play them either. But <laughs> one very interesting one, which actually went down terrifically, and I kept thinking at the time, well, this is weird. I went with Jack Straw once to Afghanistan when Britain was reopening its embassy, and it was quite a big occasion. It was after the fall of the Taliban, and they gave President 
Karzai a box set of Yes Minister <laughs> television <laughs> comedies about bureaucracy and the craziness of how bureaucrats always get their way. He was absolutely delighted. He said, it's just like here in Afghanistan. Well, that does bring us, I guess, finally, Michael, to the question of of what actually happens to this stuff. You were saying earlier that past a certain point, certainly in most Western countries, the recipient can't keep them anyway, so they presumably get stashed in some warehouse somewhere. Is, Is that largely the fate of diplomatic gifts? Largely, but not entirely. I mean, one of my mates from university days is now the Duke of Gloucester, and in his house, his father had all kinds of gifts that he was given both when he was Governor General of Australia and in his various royal duties. And there was a wonderful cabinet with all these little knickknacks, most of them just small things that he'd been given and he'd collected. And so some of them do go into the private house, as long as they're not too ostentatious or big. But nowadays, I think the rules are even tighter. It is much harder to take home anything. Either you have to pay the duty, the tax on it, and sometimes that could be exorbitant, or you find you just know where to put the thing. So it does go back to whoever looks after diplomatic gifts, and there must be a great store of these things, but they probably go and look at this store, you know, next time they need to send a gift to that particular person, think haven't we given them that before? I mean, <laughs> we had two of those already. John, there is also the option, just finally, and I'm pretty sure you've seen an example of this, of turning the diplomatic gifts into a museum in their own right. Absolutely. I mean, Michael mentioned people who have a, a cabinet of of diplomatic gifts. If you are a potentate like Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un of North Korea, a mere cabinet doesn't even <laughs> doesn't even put you on the starting blocks. But there's an in- entire building, in fact three buildings now full of gifts to these people some of which are really quite bizarre. The Nicaraguans at one point presented a stuffed alligator mounted so that he's serving drinks off a silver tray. My favourite in there was a piece of the Berlin Wall with Freiheit, Freedom, across it, which presented by a German trade union delegation, I believe, to one of the North Korean leaders. And there it is, the message is clear as daylight to anybody who actually visits the museum. So people do also use gifts to get certain messages across that are difficult to express in words. Can I come back to a previous question? Mm. Gifts that simply are discarded by the recipient. There was a celebrated incident way back before the end of the Cold War where the Finnish president visited East Berlin and presented Honecker with a Finnish sauna, little knowing that Honecker loathes and detested saunas. <laughs> and you know, Honecker sort of kept a straight face, thanked him for it as one does in these situations. And immediately he, the Finnish president had left. He instructed his officials to get rid of this thing and sent to the furthest possible place. Jawohl, they said, and scratched their heads and decided that the furthest possible place was the East German embassy in Pyongyang in North Korea. So, slightly to their surprise, the staff of the embassy were treated for many years to a presidential-level sauna. Very happy diplomats from a rather unfortunate gift. Well, I'm sure we've come up with some last-minute ideas there for several, at least, of our better remunerated listeners. Michael Binion and John Everard, thank you very much for joining joining us. And finally, on today's show, it is that moment on the Thursday briefing. Save yourselves, it's too late for me. Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here for the Global Countdown, which the briefing's long-suffering listeners will be aware usually has some sort of interlinking, overarching theme. (laughs) 
Always, there's always a different theme. And this one, please listen because it might be complicated for some. Oh, so basically, it's the number one songs from the countries that topped our soft power survey from the latest issue, which is out now, the December, January, our tradition here at Monaco. We, talk, we rank countries by their soft power appeal. Um, Fernando, I feel like I've been somewhat trapped here because this is, in some sense, a commercial tie-in with our magazine wing. Am I going to be obliged to be nice about all of these? Yes, you will. We love a commercial tie-in, Andrew. Uh, but shall we start with number five, though? If we must. This is a country uh, that I think produces very good music, and they're having a new movement there. Well, I say new movement. It's mm. trap. It's not necessarily new, but Spanish trap. Trap, you said. Exactly. Okay. Spanish trap is huge. I think <laughs> young people in Spain, honestly, young people in Spain are loving it. Uh, mm. sh- well, let's have a little taster for you. And number five, of course, the country is Spain. And their number one song is by De La Fuente and Morad with Manos Rotas, Broken Hands. <laughs> Is De La Fuente Spanish for tone deaf? <laughs> no, he's uh. just Spanish. But uh, also, I don't know if you notice. I don't know if I could notice from this part of the song, but it's flamenco inspired as well. Mm. So there's always some flamenco touches. Flamenco in there. inspired trap. A answer to a question literally nobody was asking. But for there's a day. beautiful line in this track. It's about heartbreak. I wanted you by my side, not with the other side. Brilliant. Has she run off with somebody who was not a practitioner of flamenco trap? There there, there (laughs) could be a lesson there for him and indeed for all of us. Well, number four, I Mm. hope you don't criticize the country. I love it very much. It's Japan. Uh, Very good. I I have nothing against Japan. (laughs) That may change in the next 30 seconds. It might change, actually. Mm. Uh, This is the, you know, very, well, almost iconic group, Nogizaka 46. And I'll explain their name after. The song is called Monopoly. Is it called Monopoly, Fernando? Is it called Monopoly because it goes on and interminably on until everybody loses the will to live? Perhaps, but they're sweet. You know, in the video, they're kind of drinking afternoon tea with some kind of cakes and kind of waving their hands rock a little and roll. bit. It's quite rock and roll. Mm. And although the name is Nogizaka 46, at the moment, there are only 36 members uh, of the band. So, uh, hang on. The, the name is Nogizaka 46 because there has been, at some point, 46 actual members of the band. No. In fact, that's a very weird one. Mm. It's named after the location of Sony Music Japan. That's the address uh, of Sony Music Japan. And they decided to name the band after that. But yeah, it's a bit confusing because they do... They were up all night working on that, weren't they? What do we call the band? I don't know. Why don't we just name it after the address of 
our record company. Exactly. You could have called Nogizaka 36 at least because they have 36 members. But that changes. That fluctuates quite a lot. Well, I mean, if you've got 36 members, it would be easy to like lose or gain, you know, three or four either way and not really notice. Have you ever been a member of Nogizaka 46? <laughs> no, never. I have to admit here on air, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, if there's that many of them, your number is bound to come up. What happens if they get binned by Sony? I mean, bands get <laughs> dropped by record companies. It happens. That's, that's and arguably in this case it should. What do, what do they do then? I think they will have strategically to change the name for sure. I don't think they've thought this all the way through uh, or indeed anything else. Uh, at number three. First of all, I have to say I'm a little bit of a cheat here because we're going to Switzerland mm-hmm. and I'm not going to review names, but the number one song in Switzerland... But would they not want to be associated with this? <laughs> no. The number one song in Switzerland, we are playing it later. No, I'm no words anymore. So mm. you know what I did here? I do went to the me. albums chart. I see. Yes, so very smart from my side here. Fernando, I I think this invalidates the (laughs) entire premise of this week's Global Countdown. I think we should stop now. But there's an interesting story here. It's a Swiss Mm. band, a very traditional Swiss band. They've been going on for 40 years. Do they play enormously long horns on the side of mountains while wearing lederhosen? I'm sorry, Andrew, they're rock and roll. Well, then they're not traditional enough. And they they have sense of humor as well, because the band's called Zudi... (laughs) Zudi (laughs) (laughs) They're Swiss and they have a sense of humor, righto. The band's called Zudi West, and they're from Bern, so they're kind of being ironic because some people say Bern is just west of Zurich mm-hmm. so it's just kind of another kind of part of Zurich so they have Fernando once we're talking about a Swiss rock and roll band the good ship irony has long <laughs> since sailed and I have to say the track we're going to hear is quite melancholic actually there's a, there's some sadness and, in there as so am I at this point <laughs> be careful with the jokes there <laughs> this is Zuri West to Vlog Durzit job <laughs> Tram mit fremden Leuten Eine Sonne, die auf die Zeitung scheint Vor Wärme, ich spüre nichts Und manchmal denke ich an Früche Und manchmal denke ich an dich Und mein Herz and before you say anything bad, be careful, Andrew, because the vocalist, actually, this is a sad story. Kuno Lawiner, he, he he does have multiple sclerosis, actually. So that's mm-hmm. one of, perhaps, one of the final albums of the band. So it's quite a lot of sad stories going on in the Swiss press about the band, but it's it's a success. Uh, Fernando, that's a, you know, a, that's quite the buzzkill on, on this week's Global Countdown. I know. Although, obviously... Uh, we would wish him and his band and their doubtless many fans all the best. But at, at number two, can we kick it up a notch possibly? Absolutely. We're going camp here. It's the USA. Mm-hmm. And this, it's, I'm surprised that it's number one again. Well, surprised because Brenda Lee was number one in the US just last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, oh, perhaps Mariah's All I Want for Christmas is You. It's, it's out of the game. But it's back in the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, this song is a giant. Mm-hmm. It's re- and I'll be I'll, I'll be honest here. It was the number one song in Switzerland as well. So that's why I didn't want to play it for Switzerland. Shall we have a listen? Go on. I mean, I don't think there's anything much to be said about that that hasn't already been said several zillion times over the last 30 years or so. It, it's a tough one to argue with. 
It's a t- it does have a pleasant voice. That's all I can a say. Pleasant, a pleasant voice. Yes. Well, there, there, there's a quote for the poster. Yes. Um, but as everybody at Monocle knows, uh, Fernando, that is only the second best version of that song ever performed. Because, of course, we do at the Christmas party every year get treated to our own Paige Reynolds uh, version of the same song. What a beautiful voice. I mean, Indeed. So, and it's always know, a delight. I reckon she's got Mariah covered. She that, also that, does have a pleasant voice. That is my controversial <laughs> take. Uh, at number one. It's France. Mm-hmm. It's a country, as you know, I love it. <coughs> I love the country musically. And this track is not very Christmassy, I would say. It's been 11 weeks at number one in France and is known consecutive. So it's being released in the summer. But it's still number one in the Christmas season. It's so a it's been number one since the summer? Basically, yes. The French are in love with this, this track. Is, this is like more oppressive than the Brian Adams hegemon of the early 1990s in the UK. It could well be. This is the French pop music equivalent of the Monocle Daily in the North Macedonia Daily News podcast charts. I, I would have to agree with We've you We've been on number that. one for weeks. It's inexplicable. It's Hi, incredible. <laughs> he's a sensation. Uh, his name's Jungeli, and he decided to invite a lot of French musicians with him. Ines A.S., Alonso, Anabui, Debling, and Losa as well. Sorry for my butchering here. But let's have a listen. <laughs> Petit Jenny. It is Petit Genie French for little talent. For a little genius, actually. I wasn't far off. It does have a summery touch to it, I have to Mm. say. You know, it's something. But it's winter, Fernando, and they're still listening to it. Exactly. And the lyrics is talk to me, love me, don't talk to me about feelings. I mean, I do like talking about feelings, but anyway. Some other time, perhaps. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Fernando, (laughs) thank you for another year of sterling service on the Thursday Briefing Global Countdown. That was Monocle's Fernando Augusto Bischeco, and that latest issue of Monocle magazine is on a newsstand very near you now. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.